Honor and good morning. My name is Colin Jorgensen. I represent the four appellants in this matter, uh, employees of Benton County, Arkansas, who worked in the Benton County Jail at the relevant time, um, Spencer Williams, Desiree McCain, Greg Hobelman, and James Cody Smith. The county appellants asked this court to reverse the district court's summary judgment order denying them qualified immunity and either dismiss the complaint against them or remand with instructions to grant qualified immunity to the county, the individual county appellants. The undisputed facts and evidence submitted on summary judgment are critical, critically important to qualified immunity analysis, and so I've dedicated half of the appellant's brief to recitation of the facts with citations in this case to try to assist the court. Counsel, uh, do you contend there are any disputed facts in this case? Not that are material, Your Honor. Um, I've, I've overloaded the brief, with, and I also came very close to the word limit. I apologize for that. Uh, it's mostly because of those facts. I've also done that so you can see exactly what the evidence shows in this case and what the evidence does not show. What would you say the non-material disputed facts could be? Uh, so that may itself be disputed between the two of you as to whether the disputed facts are material or not. Right, Judge Smith. If, um, I'm not aware of a contention for the appellee that there's a disputed fact that that is material. I suppose the, the timing of uh, one paragraph in Desiree McCain's um, incident report is disputed uh, and that's the closest thing there might be to one that could be considered material. But I, I would argue that it, it doesn't really matter where in the timeline that paragraph fits for purposes of how to resolve this case. So it doesn't, we, we don't need to decide one way or the other on that. Uh, everything else is, there's not really two sides here. There's you all a, the evidence. You have a question, counsel? Yes, Judge well, I have a procedural question. Uh, the nurse who was a defendant in the case, I believe her name is Stevens, is that yes. right? Yes. She's not here. What happened uh, in the trial court with respect to her? She is a defendant below, and she moved for summary judgment. It was also her, her summary judgment motion. She's separately represented. She's not a county employee. She's a, a private uh, medical provider employee. Uh, and her summary judgment motion was also denied by the district court in the same order, and she has not taken right, so an interlocutory she, appeal. She was denied. She... she Move for summary judgment based based on qualified immunity too. Correct. Okay, but she didn't appeal. She did not appeal. Okay, thank you. And there's also another nurse who was involved in Mr. Reese's care who was never made a defendant. Yes. Right, and there are several other jail employees yeah, who had interaction with Mr. Reese that are not parties. Uh, I have included in the facts everything that's in the, the the aggregate incident report that can be determined from the video and the timeline that staff put together including things that no defendant in front of this court knew at the time. But that is because both the district court and in briefing the Ms. Reese have referenced those facts, and I want the court to be clear that, yes, you know, for example, uh, Deputy Cogdill at 5.06 a.m. made some observations and had a conversation with Mr. Reese. But no one else was involved in that. He's not a party to this case. He did not report any of that to anyone. So the defendants before this court today have no knowledge of those facts. And there, there are other facts like that in this case, too. What's important is that we determine what these individual defendants actually knew and did not know. And what does the record show as, 
what point the detaining officials, the, def the defendants here, were aware that um, the, the uh, decedent in this case uh, had ingested methamphetamine or had uh, was under the influence of methamphetamine? Uh, that would have been after at about between 7.30 and 8, uh, which is two and a half to three hours after he came into the jail. Uh, at at 7.30, he was in a cell by himself without a camera, so he could only be observed by people checking on him at the door for that whole time leading up to then. He, he began punching the wall, and Desiree McCain, booking sergeant in charge of this area of the jail, ordered him to put it in a restraint chair for his own safety. This is something that she did to protect him. And then at that point, a nurse, the nurse was summoned by McCain and Hobelman, and McCain, Hobelman, and the nurse each had conversations in turn, I'm not sure if it was that order, but all three of them talked to Mr. Reese during this time and asked him about his drug use, and he gave some answers. He, I believe he admitted to specifically methamphetamine use to Hobelman a few days ago. Uh, he didn't admit to anything specific to Ms. McCain, but he did tell the nurse he had done methamphetamine, and she asked him how, if he did his usual amount uh, to try to determine whether he was, you know, this was just normal meth intoxication or something more dangerous. And his response to the nurse was, yes, maybe a little more of the meth. And so I think that is the first let me Let me ask you about um, Hobelman and McCain contacting the nurse. I have a note here, and you can tell me it's wrong, that Hobelman was the one who contacted Nurse Stevens. It was not McCain. Am I wrong about that? They, they both requested the nurse. Hobelman um, is... He he went he he pretty much went and got her and like brought her to the scene. So it in the other end, like from everybody else's perspective, it looked like Hobelman was the one who asked for the nurse. But McCain had also put in a request for the nurse to come over from from the desk. Is there is there any dispute about that um, as to whether or not McCain was involved in requesting the nurse? I don't believe so. Not to my knowledge. Okay. Not in not so far. Well, let me just, let me follow up, because I'm a little, the, the defendant uh, that concerns me the most here, and I want to give you a chance to respond, is McCain. McCain had the longest interaction with him. She saw him deteriorating, um, so he went from, and I've got some, some, some quotes here, from experiencing symptoms of perhaps withdrawal to becoming more obnoxious and more off-putting until eventually he was sweating profusely and became frantic. Um, so she saw him decline, and, you know, I have to look into the nurse issue, but why is she entitled to qualified immunity? If you see somebody who is undergoing some serious physical reaction and is declining, why didn't she have a responsibility to do more? She, she did have a responsibility to act when she made those observations, but she actually made those observations after Mr. Reese came under a nurse's care and she knew that Mr. Reese was already a, under a nurse's care. If, if that had not been the case at that time, then yes, she would have had an obligation to provide to summon medical care for him, have him medically evaluated. But that had already happened uh, earlier. Um, so, it, Counsel, it's your position then that the behaviors observed by uh, the uh, staff were not such that they would have put a reasonable person on notice that there was a medical emergency uh, requiring uh, professional attention? The beginning, I would say that there are some behaviors beginning with Mr. Reese uh, throwing his 
breakfast tray and punching the wall and then coming out in the restraint chair and being sweaty at that time, this is about 7.30. Beginning at that time, yes, there are, there are indications that he should be medically evaluated, and that's why he was at 7.40 a.m. medically evaluated by the nurse. She took his vitals. She got blood pressure medication prescribed for him. Hobelman administered the blood pressure medication and provided water and instructed everybody, including McCain, to keep an eye on him and let him have all the water he wants and keep an eye on his breathing because that's what the nurse told Hobelman to have everybody do. Uh, and, and from that point forward, he was under the nurse's care, two nurses actually, but starting with Nurse Stevens. Uh, and there's a lot of facts from that point forward that would indicate that he, he needs medical care, uh, but he was under medical care. He'd been provided medication. The nurses were keeping an eye on him where they were supposed to. Um, and these, these four jail employees who are involved in this appeal, are, none of them are medical, medically trained in any way. Um, they're just like the reasonable person, you know, at best in terms of their knowledge and experience. Um, and they did summon medical care when, when it became apparent to Hubbleman and McCain, based on what they saw, uh, they did. Judge Strauss, you're, you're, reference, you're referring to the paragraph in McCain's report that starts uh, sh a short while later, I'm sure. And um, I just, I, I think you can reach the same result regardless of whether you view that as placement in time right after 5 a.m. or put it after 8.30 when he's in the detox cell, as McCain has testified, that that's when she made those observations. The record allows you to independently verify McCain's explanation of that, that these observations could not have been made a short while after 5 a.m. or any time before 7.14 a.m., actually, because there's no camera in the cell that Mr. Reese was placed in. Uh, cell number seven, after intake for that first two and a half hours, the same cell where he was throwing his tray, uh, she couldn't see in without going to the door and looking in. And there's video of that door. It's been reviewed carefully, and every person who checked on him during this 5 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. time is documented. And the only time McCain checked on him was 7.14 a.m. He was checked a lot by others throughout that time, but there's no possibility that McCain could have observed anything regarding him except for at 7.14 a.m. when she looked into his cell. And it was... Fifteen minutes later that he began punching the wall, she had him placed in the restraint chair, and by 7.40 he's being evaluated by a nurse. Um, McCain explains that she, she recalls specifically that when she made those observations in that paragraph, he was in the detox cell. And the record is clear that he was only in the detox cell after 8.30 after being in the restraint chair. And there also, it would be, there's... Five other folks who checked on him from five to seven, multiple times, several of them, during this two and a half hours where that paragraph appears to fit in her incident report. None of them are defendants here. None of them observed anything in that time. There's no other facts from this two-hour period other than the misplaced paragraph from Ms. From McCain. Um, have I answered your question? Yeah, thank you. Council, you're in your rebuttal. You can continue if you like or reserve. I'll take a seat and save a little time. Thank you. Mr. Murphy, when you're prepared, please proceed.
Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Lawrence Murphy from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I know I have a short amount of time, but I would like to uh, thank this court and especially the clerk for expediting my permission to practice before you here this morning. Um, it's an honor to be here. It really is. Thank you. Um, as this court knows, Amos Reese died on February 25th, 2018. Yet another in the long, long line of tragic deaths from the scourge of drug addiction. Some of the important things to remember before we talk about why this case should be affirmed and sent back to the district court for trial, Mr. Reese was, he arrived at the Benton County Detention Center at 4.42 a.m. on February 25th, the same day he died. His intake lasted from 4.44 a.m. to 4.50 a.m., approximately six minutes. Mr. Reese was never booked into the Benton County Detention Center. Despite being there for five hours and 20 minutes, the booking process is where significant health questions are asked. The booking process is where additional assessment is done. Booking was never done. That will become important as part of our, as part of my presentation today. Um, Does the record show why? Was it because of the hour? Was it what, what rationale or what, what was the... A specific reason has not been given, but it appears from the record, and it certainly is a reasonable inference to draw from the record, that he was not booked because of his behavior and because of the serious medical conditions that he was experiencing. That is a reasonable inference to draw. He was, as the court noted earlier, I think it was Judge Strauss, he was going downhill, getting worse as the hours progressed. And so that critical information was never asked of him. Now, he left the so hospital. What, what in this case, the, the uh, appellate McCain, uh, what did she know and when did she know it that would have uh, created uh, liability in terms of being able to know that this person was uh, under relevant precedent suffering a, a serious medical event. With regard to Sergeant Desiree McCain, I have it at, at the latest, 7.59 a.m. And the reason why I have it there, and I have a different time for some of these other defendants, but for Sergeant McCain, 7.59 at the latest is when she knew that there were objective symptoms that she had witnessed and knew about that put her on notice that this man needed medical care. Does it matter that at that time that uh, the uh, uh, appellant's decedent was receiving medical attention? That, respectfully, that depends on, uh, my, my, the straight answer to that question is no, it does not matter. There is an independent obligation a constitutional violation, these detention officers, both at the Benton County Detention Facility and throughout the country, they can't delegate their obligation to protect the constitutional right. What, 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 what greater steps should she have taken? I mean, if something is already happening, there's nothing for her to do. So what are you suggesting she should have done something on top of what 
is already occurring? So I'm going to be very specific. The nurse saw Amos at, Mr. Reese at 7.50 a.m. At 7.59, all of this additional new information, excuse me, all of this new additional information was coming in to, to this particular detention officer. Specifically, Amos was Mr. Reese was frantic. Mr. Reese could not hold a conversation. Mr. Reese had a had random comments about family members. Mr. Reese admitted that he had consumed or ingested meth. She was aware that Mr. Reese was potentially intoxicated. She knew that Mr. Reese's conduct, conduct was going getting worse dramatically, not better. She even noted that Amos seemed unwell. Well, what did she fail to do? To get the nurse back to the patient or to call 911. Um, I, I think the authorities in this circuit, um, specifically McRaven versus Sanders, stand for the proposition that there is more than simply saying, oh, there's a nurse involved in the process now. Do we, is there a case where liability's been found for uh, uh, detention personnel where medical attention is being provided and, and, the, and the court has found that there was still uh, liability on the part of uh, detention uh, personnel not to uh, seek uh, greater professional attention? Yes, I believe McRaven stands for that proposition. It does. Um, in, in the general belief in those cases, or, or, or the, the proposition in those statements is simply this. Just because there's a nurse on staff, or just because a nurse has checked at some point in time on this patient, that this patient, this inmate, is on the nurse's radar, so to speak, that does not alleviate the detention officer's responsibility because that's who's bringing that new information. That's who's receiving that new information. I think one of the cases you cite, uh, however, involved uh, a situation in which the, the, uh, the person knew that the nurse was suffering from a misapprehension. Yes. I think that's not this case as far as I can tell. Whether it's misapprehension or less than all the facts, I would respectfully argue to you that's a distinction without a difference because you but have. She should have told the nurse, is what you're saying. Yes, sir. Okay, that's an answer. Thank you. Is there a dispute? Oh, sorry, Judge Arnold. Did you want to follow up? No, that's fine. Thank you. Is there a dispute about um, who called Nurse Stevens? Because Nurse Stevens says Hobelman was the one that came and got her. McCain testified um, or said that she was involved in getting the nurse, as you heard opposing counsel say. So I don't know that there's a dispute there, but I want to know if, in your view, there's a dispute there. In my view, in the uh, it was um, detention officer Hobelman who called, and only Hobelman who called. So okay. So the answer is yes, based on what my esteemed colleague said a few moments ago. Well, what okay. Do you, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. please go ahead. No, please. <laughs> I didn't well, mean I was that. just going to ask. I was going to change the subject just slightly, just to say 
what um, what implications? What um, how significant is it that um, your client? I know he was under the influence of drugs and a little frantic and maybe hallucinating or whatever the case may be. But he kept saying he kept sort of minimizing the math. Like when he was asked, "Did you take more?" Than you, than you usually do, he says a little, and at no point did he say, I took a plastic bag full of math and ingested it. Um, and so he, I understand he was a well, but he minimized it too. Is there any significant, and that's undisputed, was there any significance to that in terms of how the officers responded, whether we cut them a little more slack? I would respectfully argue, Judge Strauss, it's the opposite. And I think if you look at the qualified immunity analysis and you look at these cases that talk about the objective, what the officers objectively knew, what they observed, arguably what they, what they saw, what was happening that they were observing with their senses, because the flip side of that argument is you are basically, not you, Judge Strauss, but one would be saying, I have this highly intoxicated person Am I supposed to rely on this highly intoxicated person for an accurate, complete, reasonable medical history when at the same time he's speaking in an essentially word salad, he's not making sense to any of the other detention officers, his behavior is so erratic, even if he was able to articulate, I swallowed a bag of meth, Who's to say that that's reliable? I think that's why that first prong, that first, when you're looking at what are the objective symptoms that these detention officers are relying on, it has to be what they're seeing and what they're looking at. And I think the authorities in the Eighth Circuit bear that out. That's fair, but I wonder whether it's so unlikely. And they, I just maybe I haven't seen a case like this in five years where somebody has taken a plastic bag full of meth and ingested it. Um, the, the, the officers would never have reached that conclusion. They may have reached the conclusion maybe he took a little too much, but a little too much is very different than ingesting a bag of meth. And if he doesn't tell them, I wonder how they can know that. Judge Chester, you raise an excellent point, which there is a difference between ingesting meth and using meth. If they were asking him, how much meth did you use? And he said, more than the usual amount, a small amount more. I'm not going to try to convince you that it's greater than what it is. The record's very clear on that point. But ingesting meth is a completely different, that is not a recognized methodology by which meth is used. That's a recognized methodology for death, is what that is. And so, Respectfully, when anybody heard ingested meth, that is a red flag, for sure. Um, now, we have talked a great deal about one particular detention officer. I, if I may, and I, I'm happy to continue to answer any questions the court, the judges have. Um, well, I have a question that may be relevant to what you're about to say because it's hangs over the entire case, and that's the question of clearly established law. Uh, what, uh, why, is, was McCain's inactivity a violation of clearly established law? And I, I would say in the Eighth Circuit, absolutely based on precedent on precedent type argument. Um, in Barton versus Tabor, 
the court, this court stated, in both McRaven and Grayson, we considered the severity of the intoxicated detainee's symptoms and the context in which the symptoms presented. Thus, a reasonable officer in 2011 would have recognized that failing to seek medical care for an intoxicated arrestee who exhibits symptoms substantially more severe than ordinary intoxication violates the arrestee's constitutional rights, all the more so when the surrounding circumstances indicate a medical emergency exists. And so I would say since certainly that passage was written by this court, a reasonable detention officer. Which case was that from? That is Barton v. Tabor, 820 F. 3rd, 958. 2016. Okay, what, what does that case have time references in terms of how long the person was within the uh, observation of those uh, who were uh, defendants? In Barton versus Tabor, I, I'm going to bear with me, I'm working on that answer. At Barton versus Tabor, the officers were found to be deliberately indifference because the plaintiff could not answer questions, the plaintiff could not sit without falling over, and the, um, the decedent, if you will, or, or the, the injured party, um, the inmate was unresponsive such that an officer had to check his pulse. As far as the time that elapsed, honestly, Your Honor, I don't know whether the case speaks to the specific amount of time. If it did, I didn't include it in my notes. I'm not going to be so bold as to start reading the case in front of the U3. Um, there are, I, I would encourage the court with the minute that I have left, Thompson versus King, Grayson versus Ross, McCraven versus Sanders, and Barton versus Tabor are four cases where the court has declined to find qualified immunity and where they have found qualified immunity. One in particular, Thompson versus King from 2013, one officer was found not to be deliberately indifferent, one was found to be deliberately indifferent. Looking at the facts that those courts relied on, comparing them to the facts, I'm a, I stray from the microphone, I apologize, comparing them to the facts that these officers had, including the very first intake officer who only had a six-minute interaction. Nothing, I'm not going to sit here and try to convince anyone that that six minutes was wrong, but after that six minutes, he learned of seizure-like activity in the patrol car. That was enough under Eighth Circuit precedent. I am respectfully out of time. I apologize. What he said was he was acting like he was having a seizure. Isn't that correct? Yes, acting like he was that having a seizure. Mean he was just pretending to have them, as in acting like, rather than we don't. I mean, it's it's equivocal. It certainly is. Yes, it's equivocal, and it certainly leads to the possibility that reasonable jurors could find either way, which is why we respectfully request that the court affirm the district court's decision and send us back for a trial. Anything else, Your Honors? don't believe so. Again, thank you for the privilege of practicing in your court. It is absolutely stunning. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Mr. Murphy.
Jorgensen. Thank you, Your Honor. And like my friend, Mr. Murphy, I also thank you for the privilege of practicing in this court. I've never been in the en banc courtroom. It's, it is it is quite amazing. Um, <clears throat> Officer McCain, you just heard from... I'm sorry, counsel. Could you pull the microphone up a little Yes, more? I will speak. I'd is this better? You might want to move it around. Or let... I'll, I'll get in it. You, you can raise the podium there. There's a button on your left, on your right, I think. I, if I just speak into the mic, does that work, or do you want... Yes, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Thank you. Um, you just heard from Ms. Reese's lawyer that the time when McCain should have had knowledge of a serious risk to Mr. Reese's health was 7.59 a.m., which is when she interviewed him. This is also after a nurse is on scene providing care, and it is after McCain has already placed him, ordered him to be placed, she didn't do it, ordered others to put him in a restraint chair for his own safety because he had been punching the wall. This is when she is following up on that out of concern for his safety and his medical condition. She is doing something at that very moment in time. And it's his responses that would indicate that uh, he's, not, he's not sober, at least, right? Um, and, and, and you also heard that what she should have done at that time is summon the nurse again or call an ambulance. But you also, Judge Smith, you identified correctly that there's no Eighth Circuit case that holds that that's what should happen under those circumstances. There is McRaven where qualified immunity was denied of jail officials even though a nurse provided care. But that's because those jail officials knew from the moment that person came into the jail that he was intoxicated on a cocktail, including dangerous drugs, of drugs. They even tested him and confirmed others and got a longer list from him at interview at the front end. They knew about all these drugs in his system and did not tell the nurse that he was on drugs at all. They let her believe that he was just drunk. And that, that was the problem in McRaven, that they did not deliver that information to the nurse. There was no such information for anyone to deliver to the nurse in this case. Nobody knew what or how much Mr. Reese was or was not high on. When he was in the, because would he hadn't be told anybody would, until would, after would that the be nurse. necessary, though, if the, uh, the conditions that were being shown uh, were of such severity that, it, that regardless of the underlying cause, there was uh, a reasonable demonstration of a need for emergency treatment? I don't know how you determine wh when a reasonable person without medical background knows to elevate from nurse to emergency treatment. What the case, what the standard is about is medical care. And uh, is there a medical issue? Does this person need medical care? And deliberate indifference means you cannot walk away from that situation and do nothing if you believe there is a medical situation and a need for medical care. They satisfied that part of the deliberate indifference standard because the nurse was on scene and McCain knew that. Whether she asked the nurse to come or not, she knew, she. He was placed right there in front of her in the restraint chair. So she sees everything that happens from the time he's in the restraint chair until an hour later when he moves to the detox cell. So she knew the nurse had already been summoned, whether she summoned the nurse or not. Um, and she saw that he was under nurse's care, and she still went and interviewed him herself anyway also to try to determine some details about what's going on with him, but she was not able to get good information from him. So she still really had no more knowledge after that conversation than she did before, other than trying to 
uh, guess based on his responses at what level of intoxication or danger he was in when she's not a medical professional, but there is a nurse and, in fact, two nurses who are evaluating him for exactly that purpose. My time is up. All right. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Jorgensen. Thank you also, Mr. Murphy. The court appreciates both counsel's participation and argument. We will have found it helpful, and we'll take the case under advisement. Thank you.